Chapter 37 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon, GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Peace. With the surrender of Cornwallis, the most serious part of the struggle was ended. The news of his fall made heavy hearts among the supporters of the king and his advisers in England, while the friends of the colonies were correspondingly elated. Feeling ran high, and the speeches in Parliament were among the most eloquent in England's history, for strong excitement among the people is as necessary as great emotion in a speaker to produce a truly eloquent speech. The opponents of the war kept steadily pressing their measures, and though defeated at first, still on every vote the number of the majority decreased until at last victory had been won. The ministry resigned, commissioners from each side of the ocean were appointed to agree on the terms of peace, and hostilities were to cease. In America the people waited, but not all with the patience to be desired at such a time. A struggle lasting for so many years had increased the bitterness of feeling between the Whigs and the Tories, until it is probable in all the war there was not more suffering among the scattered homes than at this time. Raids and counter-raids were common, and where there was no central power, and no one knew just what the laws were or were to be, the lawless elements naturally abounded. However, in 1783 the final treaty of peace was made. The United States of America were acknowledged to be a free and independent nation. Canada was to be the boundary on the north. Florida, which then extended to the Mississippi River, was to be the boundary on the south, while the Mississippi River itself was to form the western bound. What the war had cost in money and lives can never be exactly known. As the debt of Great Britain was increased to $610 million during that period, Something of an estimate of the price she paid can be made. The estimate of money it had cost the United States was $135 million. Nor is it possible to know just the numbers of men engaged in the struggle. Probably not more than 40,000 redcoats were ever in the field at any one time, and the Continentals numbered about the same. This, of course, is exclusive of the militia and the scattered Whigs who fought many a fight to preserve their homes and to protect their families. Altogether, the number of Continentals provided by each state during the war is stated as follows. New Hampshire, 12,497. Massachusetts, 67,907. Rhode Island, 5,908. Connecticut, 31,939. New York, 17,781. New Jersey, 10,726. Pennsylvania, 25,678. Delaware, 2,386. Maryland, 13,912. Virginia, 26,678. North Carolina, 7,263. South Carolina, 6,417. And Georgia, 2,679. The feeling against the Tories, many of whom were doubtless as sincere in their devotion to old England as were the Whigs to the new country, became so bitter and intense 
that most of the states passed laws confiscating their property. Thus deprived of their possessions and fearing to remain among a people whom they hated and who hated them, when the Redcoats left the country, most of the Tories left too. To the British possessions in the West Indies went the Tories from the southern states, while those from the north for the most part went to Canada or to Nova Scotia. Their poverty, however, was not so great as was that of the Americans who had fought for so many years in the army. Business, if they had any before the war, was gone, and for a time the struggle for existence became intense. The leaders, or at least many of them, were in this respect no better off than their followers, but the country was new and the demands of life not many, and the resolute will with which the men of the new nation set to work in a brief time brought marvelous results to pass. It is interesting to remark that the first bloodshed had occurred in North Carolina, and the last conflict was in South Carolina. These engagements were among the minor incidents of the war, but they are worthy of note as marking the beginning and the end of the war of the American Revolution. Against the dark background of the long struggle stand forth the names of men whom all the world delights to honor. Washington, Green, Adams, Hancock, Knox, Jefferson, Morris, and a host of others respond to the roll call of American heroes. But we must not forget that among the people there was a spirit as true and a courage and determination as high as that which moved the leaders. Sometimes we have been prone to exalt one at the expense of the other, but both are worthy of honor and remembrance. It was not merely the freedom of a people that had been won, but freedom of thought as well. This ideal of free men crossed back over the sea after the war and wrought revolutions in other lands. It penetrated even the darker regions, and today there is scarcely a civilized nation in all the world that does not owe much to those fathers of ours who rebelled not so much against Great Britain as against certain ideas of a small part of the English people. Indeed, the quarrel was much like that which sometimes occurs between brothers, they may differ much the one from the other, but when an outsider ventures to molest either, he is reasonably certain to feel the resentment of both. The ideals and aims, the customs and laws, the schools and religion of the two nations still show the common heritage of both, and though each nation is now independent of the other, still both, forgetting the intense bitterness of the famous conflict, though never forgetful of its heroes and heroism, stand upon a more nearly common ground than do any other two nations on earth. The troubles of General Washington were almost at an end, though those of President Washington were not yet begun. The poor American soldiers, paid with promises that were for the most part unfulfilled, with trade or business gone, many with wives and children dependent upon them, were almost desperate as the end of the time of their service grew near. Congress had not only used up all the money it had received, but had made so many promises that it seemed hardly possible they could ever be fulfilled. But it is pleasing to record the fact, even in the midst of prevailing gloom, that the soldiers who now made trouble, as a rule, were not those who had served through the long and weary years of the war, but were those who had been the last to be enrolled. The fear was prevalent that Congress would disband the army without attempting to pay the soldiers the sums that were due them. 
Nothing spreads more rapidly than fear or panic, and soon some of the men were ready for desperate measures to compel Congress to do them justice. The members of Congress, many of whom had already suffered the loss of all things for the sake of their country, had no disposition to rob the poor soldiers, we may be sure. But as it is said to be impossible to extract blood from a stone, so from an empty treasury it is impossible to obtain gold. On October 1780, Congress had passed an act granting the officers of the army half pay for life, but nine of the states had failed to approve this measure, and as the end drew near, the poor officers, or rather some of them, their possessions as well as their time and labors having been given to the struggling country, sent a petition to Congress begging that the half pay for life might be changed to full pay for five years, together with all the money due them at the time. Fearful, as Congress delayed to act upon the request, that their reasonable demand was to be refused, a movement was started in the camp at Newburgh, which made it appear that if Congress did not do them justice by its own free will, the soldiers would compel recognition of their rights by some acts of their own that would be unmistakable. Again, the greatness of Washington shines forth. For being at the time in the camp, he assembled the desperate men and talked to them so calmly and with such sympathy and evident appreciation of their sufferings and feelings that the men yielded to his desires. Then Washington wrote Congress a letter in which he urged the justice of the pleas of the army, and it was voted to grant the requests of the soldiers. Again trouble arose in Philadelphia. Congress, in October 1783, declared that the soldiers in the army were to be discharged on the 3rd of December. Once more fear seized upon the men at Lancaster that they were not to be treated justly, and about eighty of them proceeded to Philadelphia, and there, with others, marched to the State House, where Congress was in session, and placing guards armed with bayonets at the doors to prevent the escape of the members, sent in a message that if their demands for pay were not granted within twenty minutes, they would compel action by force of arms. Surely the lot of a congressman in those early days was not a happy one. For three hours the members of Congress were held as prisoners, but then being let go, they fled to Princeton. As soon as Washington learned of the trouble, he sent a strong force of soldiers to Philadelphia, but the storm had subsided before they arrived. On the 25th of November the British evacuated New York, having previously abandoned all the other places that they held, except the forts north of the Ohio River, which they steadily refused to give up until twelve years more had passed. As soon as the British had departed, the American army entered and took possession of the city of New York. Crowds of assembled people cheered, the roar of cannon added its volume to the sound, and the delight of the multitude apparently knew no bounds. A dinner was given by the officers of Governor Clinton at France's Tavern, and in the evening the city was ablaze with bonfires and rockets. On Thursday, December 4, 1783, the prominent officers were again assembled at the tavern of Samuel France, this time to take leave of their great commander, who had led the army to its final victory. When Washington entered the room, it was evident to all that he was strongly affected. All the hardships, struggles, bitterness, disappointments, and victories and defeats were things of the past, and yet were to be a living, lasting part of the life of every soldier in the room. At last Washington said, 
With a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. I cannot come to each of you to take my leave, but shall be obliged to you if each will come and take me by the hand. General Knox, who was standing nearest him, instantly turned and grasped the outstretched hand of his commander. Both were in tears, as was almost everyone in the room. In the midst of it all, Washington turned and kissed his faithful friend. Indeed, it is said that every officer was thus accosted in that parting scene. The farewell having been spoken, Washington left the room, and solemnly silent, walked down to Whitehall, a vast concourse of people following him all the way, and there entering a boat, was ferried across to the Jersey shore, and departed on his way to Annapolis, where Congress was in session, in order that he might resign the commission of commander of the American army into the hands that had given it to him so many years before. He remained for a few days in Philadelphia, and it was the 20th day of December, 1783, when he informed Congress at Annapolis of his purpose. It was voted to make the occasion a public one, and the eager people assembled in great crowds. The house was filled, and in the gallery were Mrs. Washington and many other ladies. When Washington entered, he was led to a seat, and then Thomas Mifflin, the president of the body, arose and said to him that the United States in Congress assembled were prepared to receive his communications. George Washington then arose, and though his deep feeling was evident to all, in a dignified manner he spoke as follows. Mr. President, the great events on which my resignation depended, having at length taken place, I now have the honor of offering my sincere congratulations to Congress, and of presenting myself before them, to surrender into their hands the trust committed to me, and to claim the indulgence of retiring from the service of my country, happy in the confirmation of our independence and sovereignty, and pleased with the opportunity afforded to the United States of becoming a respectable nation, I resign with satisfaction the appointment I accepted with diffidence, a diffidence in my abilities to accomplish so arduous a task, which, however, was superseded by a confidence in the rectitude of our cause, the support of the supreme power of the Union, and the patronage of heaven. The successful termination of the war has verified the most sanguine expectations, and my gratitude for the interposition of Providence and the assistance I have received from my countrymen increases with every review of the momentous contest. While I repeat my obligations to the army in general, I should do injustice to my own feelings not to acknowledge in this place the peculiar services and distinguished merits of the gentlemen who have been attached to my person during the war. It was impossible the choice of confidential officers to compose my family should have been made more fortunate. Permit me, sir, to recommend in particular those who have been continued in the service to the present moment as worthy of the favorable notice and patronage of Congress. I consider it as an indispensable duty to close this last act of my official life by commending the interest of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God and those who have superintendence of them to His holy keeping. Having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body, 
under whose orders I have so long acted, I here offer my commission and take my leave of all employments of public life. Washington then handed his commission to President Mifflin, who made a suitable reply, and the simple ceremony was completed. The ovation which Washington had received from the time he had left New York now followed him and his wife as they journeyed toward their home at Mount Vernon. Salutes, militia, music, and the cheers of the people greeted them on every side. But at last, after an absence of eight years, during which we have, in these pages, followed him and his devoted fellow patriots, he was once more in his own home. But now he had a country as well as a home, and the price which had been paid for it, paid in blood and tears and suffering, will never be in vain so long as true men and brave-hearted women cherish the memories and follow after the ideals of those who changed the American colonies into the United States of America. End of chapter 37 End of Young Folk's History of the American Revolution